We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 12. And as you're getting your Bibles and you may be opening up to it, um, when time allots, we go to the Proverbs. So we're going to jump back to pretty much the middle of the Bible. And we're going to look into Proverbs 11. A few verses, starting with verse 24. He says, There is one who scatters, yes, yet increases more. And there is one who withholds what is right, or more than it is right, but it leads to poverty. I must have looked at this a long time ago because I wrote cheapskate next to that in my Bible. <laughs> but the generous, you know, the generous, you can never outgive God, as a brother told me. The generous will never lack. You get what you give in a sense. Now, the corollary to that is once that's established, we see that those who hold too tightly to their security, those who may be stingy with what they have, won't be able to keep it. It's like trying to put a tight fist on a handful of sand. It's going to start getting through your fingers. And at the very least, their poverty or the result will be a bankrupt spirit. Verse 25, the generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. A continuous theme here, the generous are blessed. This practice of watering, which is another word for blessing, as a byproduct to the giver, okay, as a byproduct to giving to the others, the giver gets a benefit. Verse 26, the people will curse him who withholds grain, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Now, this is neat because this is simple economics. When I was in college, I took a lot of economics courses, and there's relationships to supply, demand, and price. If the supply is shrunk or held back, or the, or the demand is increased, or both, those both have an effect of increasing price. And sometimes in a time of crisis, certain companies, and this has happened even in our country, they'll take advantage of the crisis and artificially hold back some of their product so that the prices get jacked up. Well, what this is saying here is that the, um, the honest businessman is praised but the businessman who's a price gouger is going to be hated. Verse 27. He who diligently seeks good finds favor, but trouble will come to him who seeks evil. This is self-explanatory. You reap what you sow. In what measure you give out, that will be returned to you. And verse 28, the last one we're going to cover today. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Jesus said, he who surrenders his life will find it. But he who tries to uh, find his life, seeks his life, you know, will, will lose it. And the question is, where do you put your trust? So we see he who trusts in his riches. But you can take that equation, remove riches, and put anything in there. Okay? And whatever you trust in, and if it's not Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will eventually fail. What do we put our trust in? Now, as we fast forward to 1 Corinthians, we're going to fast forward about a thousand years, a different culture. We go to the direction of the right in our Bible. After the Gospels, Romans, Acts, 1 Corinthians. Jump into 1 Corinthians 12. It's interesting how the Proverbs tie in to what we're going to read today about the gifts of the Spirit. As we'll see, those who were generous those who use their spiritual gifts to bless others, who, to serve God, to further his cause, they become blessed. 
But we're going to find that there was a group of, of folks who either had uh, spiritual gifts or, or faked them or whatever it was, but they were edifying themselves. And we're going to see the difference there. So before we jump in, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a background. The Apostle Paul is responding to questions that were asked of him by the Corinthian church. Many of these questions were on the gifts of the Spirit. Now, they had a lot of questions back then. But you know what? We also have a question today. The gifts of the Spirit are one of the most debated items in the Scripture among Bible-believing Christians. And there's people fall into all types of camps when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. And I would go as far as to say this, and I've said this before. We understand the Father, for the, for the most part, from the Old Testament. We understand the Son through the New Testament. But the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. He's probably the most misunderstood, misquoted, um, misapplications are applied to the Holy Spirit. So that's why I want to really enrich you here with what's going on here. Let's start with this. Upon conversion, trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the, of the Godhead upon conversion. Now, don't ask me how God does this, but, you know, a part of God resides in us and with us and fills us and is alongside of us, and he's just with us. And let's just take it as it's an honor. All right, so don't ask me exactly how it happens, but it happens. We also know that the Holy Spirit distributes these supernatural abilities called gifts of the Spirit. And in the Greek, the word gift is closely associated with the word grace. Fascinating. Because with grace, we've sinned. God sent his precious son into this world to die for my filthy sins. And we, I have grace. Not only are my sins forgiven, but... Now I get gifts of the Spirit. So you can see the play on words there with those two words. These gifts were special endowments for an extraordinary work of God. And this was originally prophesied by many of the prophets, but especially the prophet Joel, one of the minor prophets, Joel chapter 2. And the initial fulfillment of these gifts of the Spirit were really at Pentecost. And we see that in Acts chapter 2, which we covered on Sundays. Now, here's the problem in Corinth, in the church of Corinth. Using, they were using the gifts of, spirit, of the Spirit for personal gain instead of edifying the church as intended by God. So, and I could just imagine what they said. We don't see the letter that was sent to the Apostle Paul, but sort of to the effect of, you know, my gift is better than your gift, or I'm more spiritual because I have this gift, or if you tell me you have the gift of healing, I'm going to tell you I have the gift of miracles, and then we keep one-upping each other until someone is the winner. It's childish. It's me-centered, and it's probably why chapter 13, which speaks about love, comes directly after chapter 12. So, without further ado, let's jump in. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So prior to conversion, the Apostle Paul explains, you know, and they were, they were idol worshipers. They had these little statues, and then they had temples with bigger statues, and there were statues all over the place, and that was their representation of their false god that they would bow down before and worship. So you had these statues, and the Apostle Paul says before that worshiping anyone but God Whatever that representation is, there's demonic forces behind those statues and those idols that they were worshiping. And at some point, they could have control over the people, right? But upon conversion, we're freed. 
We're a new creature in Christ. We're a spiritual person. We understand the natural and the spiritual realms. So we're freed of those superstitions, even today, and demonic control, right? And we're able to do great things with the Holy Spirit's guidance, the way we were designed to do. Not controlled, but God works through us. And it's an awesome relationship between, and an honor between God saying to me, hey, you know, I'd like you to do some work for me. That's my savior. That's my creator. Absolutely. Sign me up. And we work together, right? Now, a sign of the Holy Spirit indwelling a believer, because they, they, weren't, they weren't really sure. This was a new thing, this Christianity. If a person truly worships Jesus as Lord or not. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, you know, the, the, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. That didn't come by natural means. So we're starting to understand things. Now, of course, the answer is truly. You know, people can fake it and say, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus and whatever. They're looking to get business from you or, you know, they're looking to dupe you for whatever reason or they're self-deceived. So the truth is they have to truly call Jesus their Lord and only one that is filled with the Holy Spirit or has the Holy Spirit can say that. So it's also more than words. Faith without works is dead. And another evidence is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, and self-control. They're evident. It's a fruit of, of your life when you are filled with the Spirit. Verse 4. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Now, catch this. These last few verses, verses we saw different same, different same, different same three times. Why? Because... The Corinthians had a problem with unity. That was one of the underlying problems with this issue with the gifts of the Spirit. You see, the gifts of the Spirit was an issue, but there was something below the surface causing that issue. And that's what we're going to get to. Whether it was gifts, ministries, activities, it came from the same unified God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all mentioned here, the same source, and they had the same unified purpose to build the church as a whole, not as individuals. So the first test was, who's indwelled by the Holy Spirit, who's used by the Holy Spirit, those that truly worship Christ as Lord and can say that. The second test, who truly had the spiritual gifts and were using them as God intended, the answer is, those who promote unity and build the church, not themselves. So, we don't receive these supernatural gifts from God to use for our pleasure and glory, it's for the profit of all. And Paul is repetitive about that. And the question is, why is Paul so repetitive about this? Because there was a problem back then in the days of the Corinthian church. They had a lot. It was a wealthy city. Um, you know, it was like one of our modern cities today. That's the way Corinth was, okay? And there was a lot of excesses. There was a lot of wealth. There was a lot of, you could pretty much get whatever you wanted in Corinth. So it became a me society, right? It became a me society. And what do we say when me creeps into the church even today? When me creeps into the church, the problem is it pushes out the he and the we that we're supposed to be serving. I'll say that again. When me creeps into the church, it pushes out the we and the he that we're supposed to be service. And the focus is it's all about me. So the same problem back then is a problem today in the church. Verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom 
through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. Let's look at these gifts of the Spirit, and we're going to jump in, and if you're taking notes, I'll go through them individually, briefly, and uh, maybe if there's some that you weren't sure about, this will um, elucidate that a little bit for you. But they're categorized in, in many different ways. I've heard some people say, well, you have the speaking gifts and the miracle gifts. I like to look at them like this. Number one, some of these gifts laid the foundation for the early church and really lay the foundation for any church today. Some of these gifts, as we move on from there, they build, they mature, they strengthen the church that's already established. And the third part is some bring others into the church fold, right? So let me start with the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. But I'm going to reverse these two, just these two, because I think uh, we can understand wisdom better when we understand knowledge. The word of knowledge. It's a supernaturally knowing of something that you would not normally have the ability to know. Whatever reason, that you can't find it on Google or um, there's no way, there's no empirical data that can show that you know this. But God gives you a word of knowledge. And this is important. It's a word of knowledge and a word of wisdom. It's just a snapshot in time where, boom, the Lord gives you something. You, you, you have an answer to something and you just don't know how you got that answer. But it's from the Lord because it's, there's a way here to build a church, Right? The second one, or the first one that we reversed, is the word of wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge. It's a judgment. It's an insight into spiritual reality. You've seen the bracelets, WWJD. What would Jesus do? Well, when I have a word of wisdom, I know. God says, well, do that first and do this, put this here, and boom, you're on your way. Wow, God just gave me the answer to what I was looking for. And looking back, when you look at the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge, you know that you know that you know that it came from the Lord, especially when the outcome is the way it's supposed to be. Three, faith. Well, that's a gift? Is that, that's a spiritual gift? I thought that we all had faith. Well, a few things about faith. Number one, all believers have a measure of faith. Number two, it is a gift of God. Ephesians tells us that. Number three, it can grow and mature into a greater faith. And number four, it's dynamic. It's active. Okay, faith is not stagnant. There's feet on faith. Let me give you an example, a synonym, trust, an incredible trust in something. For whatever reason, I believe and I trust that the people who built this school in this stage did a good job. To act out on my faith, I do this. If I didn't think that this was built well or it was flimsy, I would not have done that, right? It's the story of the tightrope tightrope walker where the guy sees him go back and forth through these tall buildings with with the pole. And the tightrope walker goes up to the guy and says, uh, well, you believe that I could do this? And he goes, yeah, I just saw you do it. He goes, okay, well, now you get on my back. He goes, whoa, no, I'm not going to go that far. You know, his belief was limited. When the tightrope walker said, get on my back, we'll do the same thing with you on my back. Whoa, not for me. The faith wasn't so great, was it? It was just what he could see in a sense. So faith, this is an unusual trust. In other words, If you read The Voice of the Martyrs or Fox's Book of Martyrs, I don't care if it's in India or Africa or Europe or whatever. You have Christians over the years who have been persecuted, and a preferred method for whatever reason of torturing them was to tie them to a stake, build a fire around them, 
you know, light the match and boom, they burn alive. Now, there's many instances in the voice of the martyrs that speak about these Christians who, while the flames were raging, singing and joyful and happy, and it's like, that's unusual because it's the, the ability to know that everything's going to be okay and God is going to work it out to good. He, I'm going to lay hold of that scripture by faith. Now, that's not usual. Anyone in that situation would be screaming. If it was me, it would be like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. I keep trying to blow the match out, <laughs> you know? Unless God gave me that incredible measure of faith, right? So faith is a cool one. Four, or the fourth one on the list, is healing. The, the, be able to, the ability to cure diseases. If you think about it, this is a temporary reversal of the sin curse on human beings. We know that because of our rebellion and sin against God, we die. But it was never meant to be like that in the beginning. The curing uh, or healing of diseases is a temporary reversal of that sin curse and really the laws of nature. The next one, the working of miracles. In the Greek, the word is dunamis, where we get the word dynamite from. It's powerful. There's a temporary work that's operating outside of the laws of nature and sciences. The ability to work miracles, you know, moving mountains, whatever the case may be, you know, the laws of, of physics and gravity and all that stuff say this shouldn't happen, but God gives you this measure, you're able to do it, and boom, it's done. Prophecy. Predicting the future, well, we all know that. Prophets predict the future. We see that in the scripture. But prophecy also covers the foretelling of God, a declaration of God's word. Thus saith the Lord. Okay? In some of the older prophetic books, it was thus saith the Lord. The Babylonians are coming. They're going to destroy the walls, and they're going to get in here. And they were looked at as unpatriotic. But um, prophecy can also be foretelling of God's word. And some say when a sermon is being preached, it's... And to some extent, it's, it's a prophetic uh, utterance. Now, one thing I just have to digress to is in Deuteronomy 18, that was a litmus test to a true prophet of God or a false prophet. You see, even, uh, you know, the Gene Dixon prophecies, I don't think she's claiming to be a prophet of God, but uh, maybe 30 or 40% of hers comes to pass. But if she considered herself a prophet of God in the Old Testament, she'd be stoned. Because according to the scripture, a prophet of God... Is, has a 100% success rate. So that brings us into some issues. Why does anybody still listen to Harold Camping? How many times does this guy have to predict the end or Jesus' return and it doesn't happen? Well, he's done it again, 2011. Because the Mayans said it's going to be 2012, so he had to one-up them, and he said 2011. I'm just waiting for some bonehead to come by and say it's going to be next year in 2010. But the point is that God didn't call us to predict the end of the world. Even Jesus didn't share that with his apostles. He said, it's not for you to know, but the Father in heaven. So prophecy, if it's from God, it's going to come to pass. It's going to be a reality. If it's not, and they make a mistake or they, they make an error, you cannot follow that person. Seven, or the seventh one here is discerning the spirits. This is a judicial estimation or a disputation. In other words, what is from God and what isn't from God? We know that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. If he was to come to one of us, he probably wouldn't be all grotesque and ugly and scare us. He probably would de deceive, try to deceive us with his appearance, make himself look beautiful, and tell us something that's enticing to trap us. That's what Satan does. It's not like the Halloween costumes. And he says, of course, his, his minions are, uh, they masquerade themselves as ministers of righteousness. I think that discernment is very lacking, sorely lacking in the church today. 1 John 4 
so as to test the spirits to see that if they are from God. Now a discerner of the spirits will take heed. I think Dave Hunt from the Berean Call is a good discerner of spirits. And he gets a lot of hate mail from Christians. Why are you trying to divide the church? We just live in the age of deception, and he's just trying to point that out. Now, I've had this um, discerning of the spirits at times, and, you know, my first reaction to getting the discernment is, oh, you're being judgmental. I try to talk myself out of it. But there was one instance where it was very early in our church that one person came in and was really starting problems and causing division in the church. And I just kept trying to, you know, stuff it. It just kept coming back up. But I eventually had to ask the person to leave. And they went to a sister church. And I warned the pastor. And, you know, this person had the appearance that everything was wonderful until this person slandered that pastor. And he called me up. I can't believe what that person did. I said, like, duh, I told you this was going to happen. But a discerner of the spirits, you're going to take heat for it. But eventually, the truth will be revealed over time. And it's important. Differing tongues or different types of tongues. Now, this word is glossa in the Greek, where we get the word glossary in the English. It's a language. This could be a man's language or it can be a heavenly language, okay? Both uh, meted out or spelled out in Scripture. And we're going to see more of that in chapter 14, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it. But I look at this as the reversal, again, a temporary reversal of the Tower of Babel punishment in Genesis. Remember? The, the inhabitants of the earth all got together and they wanted to really make their own form of religion and they were arrogant and they built a Tower of Babel and they just going to keep going up, up, up until they could get into the heavens. And God punished them. He scattered them. And the, one of the uh, biggest ways he did that was he all of a sudden um, introduced different languages all right, so everyone settled in different areas based on their language because they couldn't understand each other. So that was the Tower of Babel. But here, it's really much a reversal. In uh, Pentecost, when Peter preached and 3,000 came into the fold, uh, Parthians and Elamites and Scythians and Jews and Greeks all listened to the speaker. And, oh, yeah, I understand him. And they looked at the guy next to him. He's Egyptian. How does he understand? He doesn't speak my language. So what happened was as Peter spoke the word, God just divided it into all the different languages, and they all heard it in their own language, which was, which was a miracle. So it was being used there. Now, this is the most disputed. <laughs> gifts of the Spirit are disputed. Gifts of tongues are really disputed. Um, and again, we're going to get more into that. Interpretation of tongues, they go together. How can someone in a public setting be edified if a person rises up and speaks in tongues if there's no interpreter? And we're going to see that by the Apostle Paul. You know, again, we're edifying the body. We're not edifying ourselves. So we're going to get into that, uh, chapter 14. And I'm going to make Anthony teach that. Just kidding. <laughs> Verse 28 in this chapter gives two more gifts or positions in the church. Helps, you can look at that as aid or relief, and administrations or governments, directorships. I would say this, and in many churches and in many of my pastor friends in other churches, um, a church administrator often can do a better job in administration and administrating than the senior pastor. That's why we have church administrators, right? Because we might mess it up. <laughs> I may have the gift of teaching. I may have some gifts, but administration, I don't know that I have that gift. So we have a church administrator. It works. Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, add the remaining gifts. Apostle, 
Okay, so we're really at number 12 on the list, apostle. And we've spoken before about the three criteria, or litmus test, the three criteria needed to be able to be considered apostle. Now, there are many today that loosely claim apostles for their leaders. The Mormons claim to have apostles and prophets in their, uh, in their system. Well, the apostle had to have, number one, seen the risen Christ, been, you know, been sent by Christ, and number three, was crucial in laying the, er, the uh, early foundation of the church. And in baseball, we would say most of these guys have O for three. So I don't know how they can call themselves apostles. Evangelist. This is the person that adds new believers into the fold. That's what an evangelist does. His or her entire job is to herald and to declare the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation as a free gift offered by God to all. And that's, that's really a full-time job when you look out at this world, even if you look out at our area. Pastor. After the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, right? The pastor stays and shepherds the church. He stewards, he's a steward over all facets of the church. Now, pastors, elders, leaders, if God has called them to a work, that's the work that they stay with. There was, um, I went to um, a, a pastor's conference this year, earlier in the year, and uh, K.P. Yohannan from Gospel for Asia was one of the guest speakers. How many are familiar with K.P.? Brother K.P., most of you? Awesome, great, awesome guy, uh, Indian, uh, Asian man who, or Indian Asian man who uh, had this great idea that instead of sending, you know, missionaries to the country that are from a totally different culture and language, his idea, revolutionary idea, was to raise up those from within the culture, train them so there would, wouldn't be that culture barrier. It was good. I mean, it, listen, anybody can minister to anybody, but it was interesting how he, um, you know, spoke about it. K.P. Yohannan has a really, I'd say, a thriving ministry, and he was offered, he tells the story, he was offered $20 million and a contract to reach even more people, right? So he had to pray about it. He thought, well, it sounds good. You know, you'll reach more people. Uh, many more will get saved. And he prayed about it. And he said, the Lord told him, is, is, is what, I give, what I gave you, is that not enough? And he was convicted by the Lord, and he, and he, and he, and he gave it up. Now, I've got to give that guy a lot of credit because this is the society or this is the day we live in, even in, among evangelicals in the United States, is if we can get you more media, more coverage, more money, your face will be plastered more places, more people will hear the word. It's almost an egocentric goal, and I believe it's a hook that, that pulls pastors away from their fellowships. Just be happy where God puts you. You are the shepherd, and you're to shepherd your own flock, the Bible says. 15. Ministering. An attendant or a servant. So are you saying to, that to be a servant is a gift? Oh, that doesn't sound really that, like that much fun. Sure it is. What if I told you, Autumn, you know, after church, by hand, will you please pick up all the papers so this place looks more presentable? And can you come in earlier next Sunday and vacuum the place and, and tidy things up and, and, you know, dust the lockers? When someone treats you like a servant, think about your first response, especially when they're rude about it, right? So are we servants? You know, I can't believe they talk to me like that. Do they know who I am? This ser being a servant and an attendant and a minister is a gift. By the way, I believe that Autumn would do that. So <laughs> she's great. 16, teacher, teaching. The word for teacher in the Greek is didaskalos, where we get the word in English, didactic. Okay, it's an instruction in understanding God's word. It's to impart the solid doctrine 
and solid faith. It's sort of like your inoculation against false teaching, which the American church, unfortunately, and the European church is rampant. There are so many false... Jesus spoke about this. This is why we learn the word, because there's going to be wolves, there's going to be false teachers, there's going to be false messiahs, and they'll all get followings. Hopefully it won't be any of us, because we've learned the solid meat of the word. Exhortation, 17. It's to encourage, to comfort, to console. The Greek word is parakalesis. For those of you who are Bible students, does that word sound familiar to you in the Greek? Right, because it's used as the Holy Spirit. One of the words used to describe the Holy Spirit is that word. And what it tells you is that the Holy Spirit in this gift, this is amazing. He gives his character and identity to you. So you can console, you can comfort, you can encourage, you can exhort. You have this incredible Holy Spirit power to do these things. The Holy Spirit says, I'm I'm just going to let you be little me for a while. You're going to be mini me, and I'm going to send you off to do something for me. That's an honor. That's an honor. When you really start understanding what these gifts are, they're pretty impressive. I mean, it should be humbling to us. 18, giving, generosity, sharing. This is an uncanny selflessness in giving to others. This person will literally give you the shirt off their back, or they'll give you their coat, literally. This is a person that may have a family heirloom or something that's sentimental, and if um, you know, it's a way to, to be a bridge or someone who has nothing, they'll just give it up. This is a person who doesn't worship their stuff, is willing to part with it in a heartbeat. Kind of goes back to our Proverbs study. That person will never go without. The gift of giving. Two more. Leadership. It's a gift. Unfortunately, some use it for evil. Satan had that gift. (laughs) He was one of the archangels, according to Scripture. He's one of the high order of angels. And he had the ability to take one-third of the angels and take them away from God and have them follow him. I'd like to be in that meeting. What the heck did he say to them? Oh, you know, guys, our working conditions, God works us these long hours, we're not, we're not paid enough, our benefits aren't that good, we need a better health plan. I don't know what he said to them, but he took a third of the angels away from God, and, and they follow him now, and they're going to be damned for eternity. So leadership, use it for God's glory, not for our own glory. Mercy, it's another obvious attribute associated with God himself. We see mercy in the gospel message. You know, we as sinners deserve punishment, right? We, we deserve the punishment. But through mercy, Jesus died for our sins, and that punishment was, was, was put on him and taken away from us. Okay, so that's, that's your list. A few things here. A few points. Number one, what you see in all these is you don't lose self-control. You ever, I don't know how to say this, I mean, how many people ever saw someone who was demon-possessed? You know, maybe a few of you. It still happens. Uh, but, you know, from what I read in the scripture, the person just loses control. They hurt themselves. They're not aware of what they're doing. Uh, they have supernatural strength. They just, it's, they're self-destructive. But the Apostle Paul was saying in the beginning, basically, when we have the Holy Spirit, it's not like that. You know, God doesn't throw us around because the devil doesn't care about us. God does care about us. So we work in concert with the Lord, Right? So we don't lose self-control. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Also, the gifts are usually, maybe there are some instances, not enjoyed by the recipient. In other words, the Apostle Paul had the gift of healing. 
You know, I try to keep my messages to 35, 40 minutes. Apparently, the Apostle Paul one day in Acts was preaching so, so long that Eutychus fell asleep, and he was sitting out by the window, and he fell out of the window and hit the ground, and he died. Well, it should tell you something. If you think you're going to fall asleep, don't sit on the windowsill. But the Apostle Paul came out. Obviously, he had the gift of healing, and he brought this guy back to life. It was Eutychus, right, from my Bibles. Thank you. Okay? Um, he had the gift of healing. But we also see the Apostle Paul beg God three times, oh, this thorn in my flesh, please remove it. Why didn't he just say, I have the gift of healing. I heal myself. Didn't work. Try it again. Whatever. He couldn't help himself. So, again, that's one example. But for the most part, when you, when you have the gift of healing, it's not so you can just waste it on yourself. It's so that you can bless others. Now, what I don't see here, and before I say this, I'm not trying to set up a straw man or a paper tiger because I have seen this. Holy laughter, right? There are some things that the church today wants to attribute to the Holy Spirit. Now, it's from a spirit, but it ain't the Holy Spirit. The whole congregation just burst out into laughter, and they're falling on the ground, and they're flatulating. I mean, just losing control of themselves and their um, emotions, and there's no edification to the body there. I don't know how losing control of your bowels or making a complete fool of yourself can edify the church. It doesn't. Last point that I want to make on this, third point. If you've been a believer for a few years, and this is, this is frightening to some. I remember Mormon missionaries came to our house once, and you know, we were discussing what we believe, and they said, oh, you're those evangelicals. You people speak in tongues, and you people, you know, they've seen stuff on TV that's weird. And, um, and we had to explain this. <laughs> but the bottom line is, if you've been a Christian for a few years, or you're rel rel relatively a new believer, or you say, you know what, this whole gifts of the Spirit thing, I never took notice of it. Maybe this is your sermon. Maybe this is for you to pray about what you've just heard and say, gee, you know, Pastor Joe, something stuck in my head, number 14, whatever it was on the list. You know, I do that. And, and I think that ever since I've been a believer, I've been better at that. That might be my gift. So this might help some of you who never really took this, you know, you, you may look at, oh, the pastor or the healer or the tongues. I don't have any gifts because th th these people are amazing, but I, I don't do anything. I just clean houses or I, you know, I talk to people when they need me. You know, think about that. Think about what we just talked about. And we're going to see next Sunday that the Apostle Paul says they're all important. There's none better than the other ones. We all work together. And it's hard for humans to understand. And the question is, um, many will say, and, and there's two, two really opposite camps. Are they relevant for today? Some will say they're all relevant for today. Some will say, and I call it the expiration day theory, that none are relevant for today, like they expired. Um, I believe that they are relevant for today. I believe that uh, some were really necessary in the early church and maybe to the, a greater degree are not relevant. But for the most part, I think they're, they're relevant today. In the Old Testament, you had Elijah had the school of the prophets. Uh, in Hebrews 1, we see that the Bible says that God spoke to us uh, by his prophets in times past, but in these days he speaks to us through Jesus Christ. So I think strictly a prophet who goes into the, you know, the square and starts predicting the end of the world or whatever it is, I don't think that's really relevant today. However, you know, thus saith the Lord, because the scripture says this, well, there's a part of prophecy. So I don't think it's anything that we should not break bread upon. You know, there are those who have different opinions. Pentecost, 
Peter was establishing the church for 3,000 souls to be saved. They all had to hear the gospel in their own language, so tongues was big time back then. Um, you know, is it is needed as much today? Maybe not, but again, it's not something to, um, to walk away from each other over. Uh, I think that uh, in the mission field, you talk to those who come from uh, India or uh, China or Africa and, and different countries in there, I mean, they'll, they'll tell you firsthand stories of real miracles that are happening there because not only is the church persecuted, but sort of like when the Bible was written, right? In order to establish a church through that persecution, there had to be much greater works of the Spirit. And I think as Americans, unfortunately, even as American Christians, we rely too much on you know, our bank accounts, the, the skill of our doctors, our technology. You know, we live in a world where everything is, if I don't see it, I can't believe in it. So I don't know. Is God using his spirit less in the United States? Is he, are, as a nation, are we turning our back on him, even as Christians, and to some extent? I think there's some good discussion that we can have on that. So, uh, again, different people are going to have different views. Last verse. Verse 11, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. And that's the most important uh, verse in this whole portion that we read so far. The spirit distributes as he wills, not as we will. Because when we do it, we mess it up. And we're not cohesive when we do it. We are the body of Christ and Jesus is our head. Contained in any head is a brain. Jesus tells us what to do. He tells us which way the body moves. You know, imagine a body trying to work together without the brain. It would be confusion, and it would probably die. So the Holy Spirit distributes as he will. I remember as a new believer, I really wanted to speak in tongues. And I was, you know, you get into all these phases. I was taught how to just roll your tongue and go, abba dabba babba labba dabba and eventually God will start speaking through you. That's not his Holy Spirit wills. That's, I wanted it. Well, I don't have the gift. I'm sad to say I like it, but I don't have the gift. Maybe one day I will speak in tongues. And we're going to talk about that. The Apostle Paul says, listen, whatever you got, it's worthy. Use it together. And you get the impression that tongues is a big thing here, that the Corinthians were really using it to make themselves, give themselves an air and put themselves above others. And you see that today. In some um, evangelical circles, they'll say, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. Well, you might as well find yourself another pastor because I guess I'm not saved. I was being facetious. One gift you may always have. One gift you may have at certain occasions, but the Holy Spirit makes the call, not us. And that's important. And I do believe that if we're not honoring God, or if we're prideful like the Corinthians were, or we hide our gift, we can lose that privilege for a time. You've heard the expression, God put someone on the shelf. They won't use them for a while. If we, if we abuse it, if we dishonor God, God will put us maybe in one of his cabinets behind the baking soda or the vanilla extract, but we're going to be up there on the shelf for a while. The Corinthians were guilty of making their spiritual relationships me-focused. And I think there's an application today. It's alive and well in America, right? We live in a culture that's just so fast-paced that we think about me and the Lord a lot and forget about our brothers and sisters. And that attitude will cause believers to take any practice that impl that's implemented by God for good for the body of believers and turn it inward focusing, right? We saw that with the Lord's Supper, didn't we, in chapter 11. It was disgraceful what they were doing to each other while they were taking the Lord's Supper. It was terrible. Their agape feasts were 
love feast, it was a hate feast. They were brutal to each other. So by the time we finish chapters 12, 13, and 14, I believe that God will train us more. And that's, as believers, we want to be trained. He will train us more to be even more other-focused and not self-focused. Let's pray. The Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word as always. Uh, you bless us whenever we can open this book, Lord. We thank you.